Good to see you all again, though. Welcome back to Hiawatha Church. If you are a regular attender, if you're visiting, um, great to have you here as well, like Spence said. Thanks for coming today. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John right now. I think Peter was praying a second ago, so um, we are in chapter 11. Uh, this week is uh, part two of uh, a three-part mini-series on the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. So um, uh, this is the part when he interacts with his sisters, Mary and Martha, a really interesting section of Scripture. Um, so if you missed last week, it's the part where Jesus finds out that Lazarus, his friend, has a terminal illness, but he decides to wait uh, outside the village uh, to go heal him uh, so that he would die, so that he would have an opportunity to raise him from the dead. And so we talked about just the uh, intricacies uh, and, and the, maybe even the problematic-ness uh, uh, of that whole thing and, and how, um, how that all works out. And, and so this week, though, he does go, and he's been dead four days, and he interacts with people who are mourning. And we learn a lot here about theology and about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. If you are new to the faith and not a Christian yet, this is a great passage of scripture to look to, to understand who really is Jesus and what is his mission and why is he here at all and um, what's his MO, essentially. So, and the next week is when he'll actually be raised from the dead, and so that's coming. It's just slow to happen, and so uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up next week. But... All right, so with that said, uh, let's read from John 11, 17 to 37. This will all be on screen, but if you want to turn to a Bible for context or a phone app that you have, as always, please do that. That might be helpful for you as well. All right, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When, he, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man, or the one who'd opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? All right, so um, a couple words by way of uh, recap here. You may have noticed that there are some similarities and differences with the sisters. Uh, one of the similarities is that both of the sisters, Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, uh, both say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Um, verses 21 
and also in 32. And I think this is really interesting. It's hard when you read this to know uh, whether this is a what took you so long, Jesus, uh, kind of sentiments, or if this is just a statement of fact, but it's hard to believe that there wasn't at least a little bit of the former going on. Jesus, you can do anything you want. You've turned water to wine. You've opened the eyes of the blind, like some of the Jews there said at the end of the passage. You've walked on water. Nothing is impossible for you. If you had just been here a little bit earlier, you could have stopped all of this. And so even though they're right, in a sense, they, there's a bit of a, a pinning the fault on Jesus here, a bit of a sentiment there. And I'll talk more about why that's important later on. Uh, but for now, notice that Jesus doesn't hold them to it. Uh, you know, maybe it's because he knows he's at a funeral, so he kind of, you know, knows the room and knows that they're not in their right mind. Uh, but I think it's more than that. Uh, I think that this is a picture of how God doesn't hold our poor theology, and our limited understanding against us. Uh, As I mentioned last week, without a gospel anchor to passages like this, passages can become a litmus test, like this can become a litmus test for us on how well we're trusting God through suffering, how well we're applying the doctrine of God's sovereignty to our hearts, as if the story is more about weighing ourselves against the sisters here, or against the Jews, as if it's more about our maturity than it is his grace. And I, and I think Jesus' response here to the sisters further proves my point. This is not as much about us as we think. All right, so going back to the two sisters here, though, um, maybe you saw it, but Jesus responds differently to each of them. Uh, Martha gets a theological encouragement a word-based consolation, and Mary gets his tears. Mary gets his compassion. Mary gets his empathy. And so it's really interesting how the passage kind of flows then here in part two. It sets it up to look at this. We talked about some of the similarities with how they responded to Jesus, but there was also a a differing response from Jesus that that they both get. And so that's really what I want to do today is just kind of walk through them both in order. We'll start with Martha and then move, uh, move to Mary. But again, the bigger question here is not just to unpack history. The bigger question is, where's the theology in this? Who is Jesus through these responses? And what do you learn about the gospel as we go along the way? All right, so let's start by, I'm going to reread this. This is just uh, an amazing response that Jesus gives here. Um, basically, again, at a funeral uh, when they're mourning. All right, but let's look at Jesus' word-based consolation to Martha his theological encouragements, um, still probably putting a hand on her shoulder and saying this, but it it is a a truth-based encouragement, all right? So verse 23, Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? All right, so maybe an understatement of the year here, but this is a staggering thing to say, isn't it? Uh, and, I'll, and also, I think a question to ask here at the end as well is, is equally, um, you know, mind-bending. It's staggering. Uh, if, if you're kind of keeping score throughout the series, uh, you can throw this on the long list of reasons you know Jesus is not just a moral teacher, because 
No one talks like this uh, except God himself. In fact, if you look at how Jesus interacts with people at funerals throughout the Gospels, it's not like an example to follow. He does things that you should never do. Like, um, he says things that would be inappropriate for us to say and um, not well-received, probably. Uh, but Jesus is not just human. He's God, and he's not just a God of, of sentiment and compassion. He's a God of power who's actually able to overcome funerals, able to overcome death itself. And that's kind of what we're seeing here slowly unfold um, throughout this miniseries. All right, but I have four things here I want to look at pretty quickly um, that basically that, that we just learn about Jesus here, uh, that we learn about the gospel. Uh, again, I, I think I said this to start, but if you're not a Christian especially, these are really, this is not like an exhaustive list or anything, but these are really important things to understand about what sets Christianity apart. And, um, and maybe even more than that, just the question of who is Jesus. Um, and so the first is that Jesus personalizes, actually all the four statements start with in Jesus. So in Jesus, life is personalized. Uh, one thing you see in the first, first sentence when he says, I am the resurrection, I am the life, is that Jesus is showing how we are resurrected or saved, not by a concept, but a person, uh, namely himself. In other words, Jesus isn't just teaching about some future resurrection as if it were just a concept to hope in alone though it is a concept in one sense of the word, but he goes beyond that because he's there. And Martha, when she talks, she's, her, her response kind of sounds like that, like it's just an idea, I, I was taught this in, in Sunday school, you know, and, and now I just believe in that. There's, there's going to be some kind of future resurrection of the body, and I do believe in that, I was told that. So she's not like wrong necessarily, but Jesus takes it further. He, he goes beyond the concept and the idea to pointing right here, at himself. He says, I am the resurrection. Life happens through me alone. Resurrection in its entirety orbits around me. Which, so as readers then, this is why we're going to see it break into the present when he raises Lazarus physically from the dead. It's kind of like Martha's thinking on a certain timeline, like, yeah, that's in the future. And Jesus says, no, I raise people when I want to because I'm the one who raises the dead. It happens solely on my dime, and by my will, and by my choice. And so he pushes the timeline way forward back and into the present. And when he says, your brother will rise again, he's going to be okay, he actually means it. He can back that claim. All right, and so, and this, I think in turn, this, this also takes the condition out of it. You know, when, um, when eternal life is not personalized, when it's made into a concept, um, it's easy to conditionalize it. Not all the time necessarily, but it's easier to like, look at the idea and say, well, there's going to be a future judgment, uh, God's going to come back, and he'll probably just you know, raise good people from the dead and allow them to live with him, but all the bad people will go to hell and stuff like that. Uh, but that's really not what Jesus is doing here. He, he, um, he again, moves it past all of that back to himself. And, and so when eternal life is made into a person, th there's no way to say, if I do such and such, then this thing will happen to me. Because again, it's a person. It's, it's not a thing to achieve. And so life is his to give, not ours to earn. That's, that's what I, I would say is it's, uh, 
it's in the white space of what he's saying, but it is very intentionally there. When he says, I am the resurrection, you can't earn that. You can only receive the life he has to give you. And God, throughout the pages of the entire Bible, not just right here in this microcosm, the entire Bible is salvation is from God. It's his to give, not yours to accomplish or earn. It's not something you turn his head uh, towards you to reward you with. Uh, it is an inheritance, not a wage. It is something you, give, you are given on the basis of someone else's work. Jesus is not something that comes in form of, of a paycheck. All right, so life is personalized, and what comes with that is not just this trippy idea that Jesus is the resurrection. It comes with gospel truth, good news, that he is here to be generous and, and to give, uh, not to knight us or reward us for the good we've done in our lives. All right, second is death is relativized. So um, I don't have this on screen, but he says, to go back, he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Then he says, and they will never die. So he kind of has two, I love that statement. It's um, kind of like almost contradictory where he says, even though he die, whoever believes in me, yet shall he live. And then he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then, then he poses the question, do, do you believe this? Basically, um, by this I just mean that Jesus is the asterisk on all of our future death certificates, if, if you believe in him. It's relativized. All die, but in a sense, those who believe in Jesus will never die because of how much the resurrection will outshine their deaths. Uh, at some point in the distant future, and, you know, time probably won't be linear in the way we, got, we have it now uh, in the new earth, but just, you know, let's assume it is. At some point in, in the future, it will be as though if Christians have never died, uh, even though technically they did at some point, is, is kind of the idea. It's maybe like um, the, the sun shining on a piece of colored fabric and, and bleaching it white over time. Um, the color of death will eventually become a distant memory and eventually forgotten entirely. And in that, it will be as if we never died. All right, the third thing is salvation is exclusivized. That's actually not a word. I just made that up because I had to rhyme with the others. But salvation is exclusive. Um, in Jesus, salvation is exclusive in the sense that Jesus says, whoever believes in me, Right? Whoever believes in me will be saved or will have eternal life. Not those who are good, not those who obey the law or the commandments of the Bible, not those who meant well and did their best, but only those who trust in him. And it's these types of teachings, again, if you've kind of been following in this series, it's these types of teachings that have been so problematic for many of the Jews, uh, and maybe for us as well, who operate on a bit more of a um, kind of a conditionalized way of thinking, uh, a bit more of a reward-based way of thinking when we think about our relationship with God and about what it means to be saved. He's distancing himself from the law, from the commandments of the Old Testament by saying those who believe in me uh, have life. In fact, um, if you guys were here for John 5, do you remember when Jesus was interacting with the, the Jews and he said, you all searched the Bible, the scriptures, the Old Testament, because in them you think you have life. But then he says, but they're the, they're the scriptures, they're the things that testify about me. So what he's saying is, you're reading the Bible wrong. 
You're taking the Bible and you're saying in the teachings of the Bible, you think that if you, you're moralizing it, that you think that if you do it, if you obey it and keep it, you will have life, you'll live. And Jesus is saying that's the wrong way to read it, wrong way. The right way is to read it as though everything's about him, as though they testify to him, whether indirect or direct, whether by way of similarity or by way of contrast, it's a story about me, and so you, you missed it. And so here he's kind of going again, all in, all the chips are in the middle of the table saying, it's all about me. They testify about me, they prophesy about me, they foreshadow me, they explicitly unpack me, and now I'm here as the word, the essence of the new covenant, the new testament. God is working again, is recreating again, is speaking again, and I'm here to fulfill what, what came before me. And so there's a way to almost then kind of weaponize the Bible against Jesus. And that's kind of what, what the Jews were doing. Many people do this, Jew or not, non-Jew. Uh, we can easily do this. To weaponize it against Jesus and to read it as though that these teachings are somehow apart from the gospel. They're apart from him, thinking that if we do them, we have life. And Jesus is against that way of thinking. Uh, Martin Luther said a long time ago, if they use the scriptures against Christ we will use Christ against the scriptures. So if you use the Bible against the idea of grace alone, you're not only using it wrong, but you've weaponized it. And what Luther is saying is that we will, like Jesus, I think, is saying in John 5, he's coming against the scriptures or that, idea, that way of reading them. He's saying, now I'm here. To have life is to have life in me and in me alone. There's no other path. There's, it's exclusivized. There's no other way than God's offering of salvation because salvation comes from him alone, not from us or what we do. All right, the last one. Is resurrection is universalized. Okay, so salvation is exclusive to those who believe in Jesus, but at the same time, it says everyone who believes will live forever, and everyone is a big word. And it's interesting here that it's happening at the event of Lazarus' death. You could almost say it's a bit insensitive because Jesus is taking the spotlight off of Lazarus for a minute and he's putting it on himself. And, or if you want to say he's going to put it on people, he's putting it on everyone who believes, not even just Mary and Martha. But it's not insensitive because the point of this story is bigger than Lazarus. That's what we need to be seeing. I mentioned this last week as well. But Jesus is at pains to show this. John, the author, is at pains, the way he writes this, at pains to show that Lazarus, it's not really about him. It, it is and it isn't. He's, it's a glimpse. In fact, if you look at Mary for a second, uh, we'll get to her in, in a minute here, but if you look at Mary and, and what she did during all of this, the way John writes this section, it, it makes it sound like Mary, the one who stayed in her home when Jesus arrived, is going through a figurative resurrection as well. So if you think back to the way it was worded, Jesus calls to her when she's in her home, just like he's going to call out to Lazarus in the tomb next week. And then it says she, quote, rises up and goes to him, which is the exact word used for Lazarus later. It's a very resurrection-soaked word if you have read you know, the billion, bazillion other passages in the Bible that, that talk in those terms and goes to him. So it's kind of like Mary coming out of her, being called to in the tomb of her home, going out to be with him, is going through a figurative resurrection before Lazarus goes through it physically. 
All right, so again, all that to say, Lazarus is only a part of the puzzle here. Jesus is saying, and John the author is saying, widen your gaze. There is something much bigger going on here than Lazarus' death and resurrection. Something more cosmic, more universal, and more spiritual. All right, so let's move on to this next section then, which um, I think brings to a head a lot of these things, but it's also a twisting of the diamond. It's a shift uh, in how Jesus uh, responds and the theology therein. So let's, let's uh, read it again from verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and all the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. All right, so a very common question that uh, people have when reading this, you may have had this yourself even today, is, um, is just why? Why does Jesus cry? Uh, especially when he's the son of God, especially when he knew he was going to raise uh, Lazarus from the dead moments later. Uh, very fair question. I, I think there are uh, two reasons. The one is maybe the more obvious, um, which is that he's human, just like you, just like me, and he lost a friend. Um, and you still might think, well, yeah, but he still knew he was, going, he was moments away from uh, making him alive. But in the grand scheme, Jesus' response here is actually the same as ours who lose loved ones who are Christians. We weep even though we know that he or she will be raised in the body when Jesus comes back, right? We cry even though we know they're going to walk this earth again in the body that they had when they died. That's an amazing hope we have, right? But we still weep. We still cry. So to say that, well, Jesus is exempt from that is kind of silly. He's more human, you could almost say, than we are. He's the, he's the essence of humanity, also uh, divinity, also uh, being, being fully God. And so, but, but all that aside, I think that, or kind of maybe through that or with that, I think this is another window, I mentioned one of these last week too, but um, it's another window into the heart of God that we don't always see. His love, his compassion, his brokenness. I would say that God is not aloof to pain precisely because he is love. And uh, love and pain go together. I, um, I've joked before uh, from up here, I think. Um, it's a joke, but it's, it's real. Um, but it's about being married to Aletha. And just, if I think about these last many years with her, I think, like, the worst things of my life have, have happened as a married man. You know, like, I've gone through more pain being married than I, I did before that. And, and I think, like, and a lot of it was because I cared so much. And so seeing her in pain, seeing going through miscarriages, seeing her life threatened um, with one of them um, as just one of the many examples. But I think I wouldn't have gone through that. And so I think like when you love, you care, and when you care to see someone in pain. Um, this is not even to mention marital strife or fights you have with your spouse or anything like that. But um, I would say God is not aloof to pain precisely because he's a God of love. You can't separate those things out. I'll come back to some of that. But, but this is what's happening here, and it's a window. I was watching uh, the Hobbit movies last week. You guys seen these movies or read the book? The movies are actually expanded. You guys probably know that. But uh, there's this character at one point at the end of the, the last movie, I think, and she's, 
She lost a loved one in battle, and she's holding his dead body, and she says to another person there, if this is love, I don't want it. Like, take it from me. Why does it hurt so much? And I think that it's so easy for us to dehumanize Jesus. Don't do that. Uh, Jesus is weeping here. And his weeping is a window into his grief, which in turn is a window into his love. Think of those three windows in a row. They're all lined up. They have to be. Definitionally, you can't pull them apart. Grief, love, weeping, they all go together. And, and like we said last week, Jesus' love here for Lazarus is the exact same kind of love he has for you. This kind of love that weeps when we're in trouble, that weeps when we've been slain by death or some circumstantial thing. That he, he cares. He loves us this much. Jesus wept because he loved. And I think there's a question for us here to ask ourselves, like, do we believe it? Like Jesus asks um, Martha, do we believe this or not? Because maybe we don't. Maybe we do back in the recesses of our brain, but do we actually apply that to the heart? Do we believe it in the moment? Maybe we don't. Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. And the reality, though, is that none of us understand God's love fully, and we never will. That's not the point. The point of Christianity is not for you to figure out God's love perfectly. It's that you're loved regardless. You're loved in spite of the fact that you don't, and you don't understand his love, like a parent to a child. You're, you're, you're loved. Um, but we still are invited in, right? That's probably why these are here. We're invited in to, to think God's love is bigger than I think it is. It's better. It's more glorious. Like that song we sang, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. How is that possible? If you know your need, if you know your sin. Like when I sing that, it's hard to sing actually sometimes. Like I, I believe it, but do I really believe that? How can, how can God's mercy be bigger than my sins? Because my sins are myriad. My sins feel like they're eternal. They're that big. But God's love is bigger. All right, so this is partly why Jesus is weeping, because one, he just he can't help it. He has love for us. Um, and also to serve as a window into that um, narratively here. The second uh, reason is to show how he suffers with and for those he loves. So if you hear last week, I talked a bit about this, how the presence of Jesus' suffering in context with the resurrection is, I would say, far and away, the most important thing to see in the passage. I would say this is actually, not to like rank everything here, uh, it's all important, but I would say this is, if you miss this, you miss the point, without question. If, I, I would too. All right, but this is the point, to show how he suffers with and for those he loves. Uh, in other words, to put it differently, Jesus entered into and took on the sister's suffering. Um, he took on Mary's tears that he might save her uh, from it, them from it. Uh, th- th- I think this serves as a picture of the type of lover that Jesus is, one who enters into our pain, and in that he resembles the greater work of salvation that he will accomplish on the cross. This is how the story starts to anticipate something else and greater is coming. And we must see this. Jesus is suffering in this passage, right? To weep is to suffer. To cry 
is to feel pain and to suffer. This is not random. This is not secondary. This is primary. And so here's why we know this is true I, uh, li- on a linguistic level, the biblical level. This is how we know this is true. Uh, these same words are used in reference to Jesus uh, in, elsewhere. Uh, when he is praying in Gethsemane and sweating blood right before he was arrested. So look at what Mark 14.33 says. It says, he took Peter, James, and John along with him. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled again right before he was um, arrested. So basically what John is doing, it's actually kind of interesting because John's gospel does not have a Gethsemane scene. Is that interesting? And the reason is, John 11 is the Gethsemane scene. Jesus is starting to suffer here. The crucifixion is beginning. It's breaking into this moment right here. Jesus' tears here in John 11 anticipate the tears he would later shed in the garden and also on the cross. Like Hebrews 5, 7 says, I don't have this one on screen, but Hebrews 5, 7 talks about that uh, in in reflection. But, But again, John 11, then, is not just Gethsemane-like. It's not just foreshadowing an event. It's substitutionary. It's foreshadowing greater theology. Jesus is, uh, and this is what's being pointed ahead to, um, the event, but also it portrays substitutionary atonement. Jesus is taking on the weeping of Mary in order to deliver her from her grief, just like he will eventually become like what he's not, He'll become like us um, to, to save us from our plight. He'll deliver, just like he'll eventually take on our sins and he'll take on death itself so we might be spared from both. Jesus cries, so tomorrow Mary will laugh. It's a flip. See, Jesus is becoming the thing that we are so we might become what we are not. He might become the problem, become the sin, the Bible says. Even though he knew no sin, Jesus became sin on the cross. He became evil, even though he was the son of God. How can that be? But he did. He became the the heat taker, the brunt taker. He became here the crier. He became the grief-stricken one. Like Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament uses that word to predict. He will be put to grief. And the Father will do that. Jesus will walk to the cross and and become sad and grieved as he's being nailed to that tree that we might be spared. Classic substitutionary uh, language here in John 11. There's even a sense here to which um, Jesus was hoisted upon with blame. Um, Seen in the sister saying, if you just would have been here, Jesus. Also the Jews in the last verse. Um, But this is a picture of Jesus being hoisted upon with our sin on the cross. Um, like he would later be, as it says here, hoisted upon by, by our guilt. Uh, it, is, um, it is to say in the same way Jesus takes our shame, takes our guilt, takes the, the, the brunt, like I was saying before, takes the heat that we might be, be truly saved from what actually ails us, like our actual problem, which is that we're separated from God. Another thing you see here that I think is pretty cool is... Um, and it's actually a revisited theme in John, is how Jesus' bodily fluids are shed 
in association with Lazarus and the sisters' salvation. So in John 11, it's his tears. Do you remember what happened in John 9? What bodily fluid was shed there? It was his saliva. Remember when he spit in the ground and used his saliva to make mud and poured it on the eyes of the blind man and he was healed? All right, well, later it's going to be a different bodily fluid, right? Later in the story in John 19, it's going to be his blood. And his blood is, more, is the more important bodily fluid. Like if you're going to rank bodily fluids, I think we can do this, right? Like you can have, you can have a dry mouth, but you can't cut open an artery. Blood is more important than spit, Tears are, more, tears are less important uh, than, than blood. Blood is the most important bodily fluid. And so there's an escalation in the stories here. Like there's an escalation in the bodily fluids. There's an escalation in the stories. The cross is more important than John 11. It just is. This is a, this is a, a step in the right direction. But this is never meant to be an island. The greater healing is still coming, and, uh, and the tears are, are a glimpse of that, that, that Jesus will give his body. He will give parts of the inside of his body. He, he will, in a very gross, visceral, can't even look at it uh, kind of way on the cross, he will be stri- just stripped down, cut to a pulp, back torn open by, by the flagellum, feet nailed to the sides of the cross, exposing his genitals, full of shame. I mean, it was the worst thing ever. And that's because your sin is the worst thing ever, like it is for me. He became the worst thing to to save us from the worst thing. Because he wanted to. Do you guys, have you heard that before? Have you ever heard this gospel? I know a lot of you have. Maybe you haven't, though. The, the, The gospel is bigger than maybe you think. It's more beautiful. It's more worthy of our time and our trust and our rumination. And so I think that's what I want to leave you guys with today is, um, and I don't know your past with this story. I mean, I've read this a lot, and I think sometimes, and I've heard it taught a lot, sometimes pretty great, sometimes not so much. Because like Jesus says, again, in John 5, there's right and wrong ways to read the Bible. You can't just approach the Bible and read it however you want and have that kind of be endorsed by God, like the right and wrong ways. And I think the right, the right way here is to see him more in it than you. Like if you search, the, even, the, if, even if you search this scripture as though you have life in it by doing some lesson, by trusting God better through your suffering, just missed it. Gone, it's way over there. You, you, we've missed it. And so I think Jesus says to us here um, in John 11, it's, it's not just I'm able to raise the dead, though it is. But it's much better than that. It's, I'm willing to suffer emotional and physical torment for you. All because of my great love for you. I'm here to give of myself, my body, my bodily fluids, my everything for your sin. Today my tears, tomorrow my blood. And he leaves us with this this question. Do you believe this? Do you trust in this truth? Do you believe in me? Have you cast yourself upon me like a life preserver in the middle of the ocean? Do do you trust me? And when we do that, because it's all about him, we're actually free. It's finished. 
There's nothing else for you. To, there's no, he's not hoisting anything upon you or Mary or Martha or Lazarus next week when he comes out of the tomb still bandaged up. There's no, nothing else for us to do. He's not hoisting things upon you. He's being the hoisted upon one. And when you actually believe that, then freedom actually comes. That's actually true freedom when you believe that you're saved by grace, not by works. When you're saved by an inheritance, not by wages. When you're saved by the new covenant, the blood and the bread, not by commandment keeping. That's actually when true freedom comes. And when true freedom comes, that's actually when life change comes. Um, That's actually when we start to transform uh, by his grace alone and his presence within us. Let me pray for us.